There's a dive near the docks down in Singapore Where the liquor is made from something vile And with luck you forget what you're drinking for Or at least for a while There's a girl in that dive down in Singapore you could drown in the solace of her smile For a price she'll pretend she means something more Or at least for a while And your thirst you might shake But a little while later You are watching the wake from the stern of a freighter And your life comes crashing are deep, but the oceans aren't deep enough. You thought you could hide, but you never could hide enough. It should have been Welcome to Musical World, episode 99. Earlier this month, Musical World lost one of its early family members, composer Mark Sutton Smith. And with a host of 
uh, a plethora of composing duties across all spectrums. Mark is also the composer of Girl Detective, The Usual, and The Brilliant Haunting Stand by the River, all of which Jim and I featured on uh, Musical World episodes. Yeah, starting way back in March of 2006 with Stand by the River. And that would have been episode three. Episode three, which unfortunately is no longer available anywhere, but we've got some of the music uh, from Stand by the River that we're going to play for you. Um, Musical World, of course, wishes to extend our condolences to Mark's family and friends and have decided to dedicate this 99th episode to the legacy of Mark's work. So, Jim, uh, what, what, what are we going to be hearing on this episode? I've gone out and I've pulled some clips from uh, our interviews with uh, Mark and Alan. Back in uh, August of 2009, mm-hmm. you and I went to uh, Chicago to the Stages Festival and met uh, Mark and Alan Gordon uh, to see the girl detective. And we, uh, we sat down with them in one of the rooms there at the uh, theater building in Chicago. Right. And uh, I'll play some clips from that, uh, just some audio stuff that made impact with us over the years. And also uh, from MW90, that was the usual that we just did last year uh, for their production of the usual that was up in, in Michigan. And uh, Jane and I went up and saw that, but we missed Helen and Mark by about <laughs> three or four days. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's just timing. And we've got a few other songs we'll be playing from those as well, from the usual. And basically going to let uh, Mark and Alan and uh, Mark (laughs) basically do the talking. (laughs) Right. So here we go, featuring uh, interviews with Mark Sutton-Smith, as well as song selections from three of his uh, remarkable musicals. This is Musical World 99, Our Legacy, from Mark Sutton-Smith. most valuable part of this process is that last week or two when you get a chance to see it and fix it rather than just see it when they present it and then finally learn what's wrong with it and then walk away and right. never have a chance to fix it. Yeah, right. we, had, we had a three-way conversation with um, Tina Salomon who directed it at one point which ended up uh, leading to us cutting one of the songs and mm-hmm. me substituting some dialogue just to uh, speed the pace of that particular scene, which worked pretty well. And sometimes that's what you need to do. That's oh, absolutely. I have plenty of it. How, how long of a process has this been for you? When, when did you start and to now? What? How long a process? Two years? The actual writing has been two years, yeah. We actually started writing in the first number in August of 2007. We had talked about it from... first time we met was uh, we had met through uh, the Yahoo... News group. I basically put out a personal ad, you know, lyricist seeking composer, and got a number of responses, and I'll mark the best. And um, and we met for dinner. Uh, we actually met by the fountain at Lincoln Center, you know, oh, okay. which is the where I always associate with Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel, the producers. Of course, but, uh, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> um, and we went and had dinner. And we each brought a show to the table, and I had this, you know, elaborate pitch with an outline and you know, dead diagrams, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and Mark says, "Sounds great. I want to write a show called Girl Detective." And I thought, cool, you know. And we, uh, 
Also, what would be the effect of someone being a girl detective in a high school? You know, I, I think it would logically piss off the rest of the student body, and that's you know, yeah. pretty much how it came out. And that's very effective dramatically, too, because yeah. you want your protagonist to be, you know, up against all kind of obstacles and trouble. Sure. So it worked out perfectly that way. Well, it's interesting that the, the, the death of her father on 9-11 is not in the way we would assume that he would have died on 9-11. He gave it away! Yeah, yeah, we gave it away. But I mean, that's... It'll change before then. I, 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 I think that's wonderful, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful uh, choice. Yes. But I think this whole tone issue, at least to me, this is the thing we need to sort of make our decision on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I have a lot of work to do in this regard because... Uh, a lot of the music is pretty sunny, you know, it's mm-hmm. pretty upbeat, it's it's written for a certain audience, you know, to be a commercial sort of uh, pop rock kind of uh, theater stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not completely convinced that I'm supporting the clarity of that vision that Alan has laid out, and that's my big takeaway. Okay. Because, you know, I think it's fantastic they're bringing all the humor out. Because the more humor, the more laughs you do, the the darker you can be. You know, right. you can get away with more depth, and then you have this huge range of, of sort of emotional um, <laughs> terrain that, that the audience can then choose where they want to be. Um, so, so it's fantastic to see this production, to see that they have put, they've, they've delivered it at a level of quality where we can see what our work is rather than worry about it. You know what they may have done or, or missed, messed up. Sure. Yeah. So. The other wonderful thing that they did that I wasn't expecting at all was I thought it was just going to be a concert reading. You know, people standing up in front of music stands and sure. you know, with scripts in hand, and they're doing a, a staged reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah, they're running all over the place. Yeah. It's much, much more interesting. Yeah, yeah right. a lot of physical comedy, and, and then you can see the story. Yeah. You remember who everybody is. Yeah. Right. And so you don't worry about did I write it with enough clarity. Sure. Uh, it seems very clear to me. You know, I don't think that's our issue. So I think we're going to play the title track sure. from the show. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little about the creation of that piece? Well, that was the, we actually was the first thing we wrote, um, and people always ask what, what came first, music or lyrics. <laughs> this was music first. No kidding. Yeah. And um, he sent me basically what would be the whole first section, and I looked and said, "What am I going to do with this?" Because it was. It was an odd structure from a lyrical standpoint because it was a nine-line A section with one long line in the middle that didn't really relate to any of the other lines. I think, oh, where, where are the rhymes going to fall? You know, from a technical standpoint, sure. it's very tricky. And I finally figured out that I could have that the orphan line rhyme across the verses, which is what I ended up doing. I thought okay. it was very clever, and then I found that some 12th century troubadour had done something very similar. <laughs> so, original me, sure. Um, and uh, And... Uh, the other thing I looked at and thought, well, we want to set the whole scene. You, know, you want to have your opening number set the world for you. And I realized that I could break it up, the song, into sort of modular components and have you know, the A section stand alone right. uh, for a few other characters as we introduced them. So we were able, you know, we had the uh, Derek, Charlie, and Casey right away, but then it spills out into the school. We have the dean come in, the police chief, her friend Olivia, the other kids. Sure. And it just keeps opening and opening and opening until you have you know that whole world set at the high school. Right. And uh, so it ended up being a lot of fun to write once I you know once he gave me the music and once I figured out work you know how to solve that. Wonderful. This is the title cut from Girl Detective. Hey there, junior scum. Beware, all you would-be wise guys. Your plan. 
smarts, skilled at and observe surveillance, trained in martial arts. Teenage girls sitting on the corner of her bed feeling sorry for herself, ballad, you know, something like, you know I would say <laughs> yeah, things like that. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this absolutely beautiful melody. Yeah. And again, I was working for a long time trying to find what the idea of the song was, and I finally came up with that. And when I said the uh, the lyric to Mark, his first comment was, that's what the show is about. You know, it's about her figuring herself out. Which, uh, oh, okay. You know, sure. um, 
And I thought, okay. And this is still early on in the writing of the book, too. So it gave me a, you know, a great uh, sense of trying to find the tone of the show from that song. I think that's really, really, I think I really started understanding Casey at that point. And that came out of the music. How? I didn't know that. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> So how was that for you? We're both parents of teenagers, which is there you go. hugely helpful. So we, we have them at home. We can observe them in their natural environment. <laughs> um, very useful, of, you know, timing in our lives. I mean, I think that Mark, Mark was the one who had the idea to do the show, and he has two teenage daughters at the time. Um, Are they still teenagers? Is it? One's still a teenager. Yeah, they read all the Nancy Drews, and they were watching Veronica Mars, and it was, right. oh, this is a great little niche of about an empowering teenage girls mm -hmm. in a way that isn't, you know, where they're amazing karate you know, fighters or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, and I, I realized, hey, no one's done this, uh, you know, in musical theater. True. Uh, then I happened to meet this guy who's written a whole series of mystery books. So. Uh -huh. okay. And then right after that, it goes into back, uh, back in the day, which is the, the chief and the mother, right? Um, which, you know, I sat there elbowing my wife, going, yeah, "I remember that." <laughs> and awesome. I sat there going, "I bet Jim remembers that." <laughs> 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 and that's that's not a joke. That's actually true. <laughs> that's amazing. That's pretty funny. Well, that's great you say that, Jim, because that's what Alan has been saying all along, and I've always been. Well, I'm not sure if it's going to work because you know there's more people in the audience than this Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing is, here, here's the big takeaway for us, is because I don't think the version you're going to hear here, I don't think this version actually would be as effective as what they did. This okay. is the song okay. where they took it up-tempo mm -hmm. oh, yes, and really, right. really gave it the spirit that Alan imagined originally. When I composed it and then did the production of this demo, it's it's really like a moody '80s rock song, well, and it doesn't have as I, much. I, I didn't think of that. No, I, I did think yeah. the same way. You know, I thought, um, you know, I thought there, there there was the humor there, but it was more of a nostalgic thing right. for the two characters or the right. middle-aged characters. Right. You know, and it was also uh, obviously you know a way for them to connect because I knew those two characters. Yeah, connect, that's you know, and, and the great thing about musical theater is that you can have a whole connection made over the course of one song rather right. than develop it of course the right. the entire thing. Although. Again, the two actors are finding all sorts of nuances in their scenes together that uh, their storyline right. is delightful. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and listen to uh, the medication and then the original version of Back to the Back in the Day. When good girls went off to bed, I'd sneak out searching instead for three chord ecstasy. I had five rings in each ear, and my hair was dyed blue. We'd cram it guys in the car, and go to bar after bar with all our fake IDs. I had a mullet to hear, and a white snake tattoo. Back in the day, when we would play eight track tapes on our stereo. Back in the day, when we would say stupid things like awesome and out of sight. Back in the day, 
I could catch Jackson Brown at the Palladium. It was way past 3 a.m. when he finally came on. Sometime in 78, I don't remember the date, out at the stadium. Bob Seger started at 10 and kept rocking till dawn. Back in the day, when we would play eight track tapes on our stereo. Back in the day, when we would get blown away watching laser shows. Back in the day, when we would say stupid things like awesome and out of And I'm clinging like a monkey to my turntable and LPs. And I'm too damn young to feel this obsolete. But then I met a good man and had to give up my plan to be a rocker's wife. Though I still carried a torch for sweet Joey Ramon. And I am now at the stage when I must act like my age. I think it's called midlife. But I still hear Jimmy Page in the dark all alone. Back in the day when we would play eight-track tapes on our stereo. Okay, I've got one. This guy walks into a bar with an ugly little yellow dog. And when I say an ugly little yellow dog, I mean it was the ugliest. The a duck and most waddles the into a bar, hops up on the bar stool, and says to the bartender, So the guy's having a beer, and the dog is curled up by the foot the of the bar stool. The bartender says, no, you do not have any grapes. It, this is a bar. You're a what weird creepy little dog. Kangaroo hops into a bar so and orders a duck. The bartender serves it to him, and the kangaroo bites it down. So the bartender... 
Oh, wait. I'm telling it wrong. Let me start over. So this guy walks into a bar. Stop me if you've heard this one. He's got no dog, no talking duck. He's got no horse, he's got no luck. He needs some lubrication, so he'll get unstuck. So this guy walks into a bar. So this gal walks into a bar. She's sometimes blonde, she isn't dumb. She likes the wine and loves the rum. She likes to go in feeling and then come out numb. So this gal walks into a bar. I hear some folks like to ride a bike or go spelunk in caverns. But when I want peace, I seek release by getting drunk in taverns. So this guy. These two walk into a bar. He's got no fish. She's got no bears. He got divorced. She's had affairs. He gets morose and sullen. And she overshares when these two walk, walk into a bar. Stop me if you heard this one. This gal walks into a bar. She's got no chimps, no kangaroos. She's got no man. She's got the blues. She thinks that all her problems can be drowned in a guy walks into a bar He's not a rabbi, he's not a priest He's not a cowboy To say the least His, his prospects, prospects of salvation Have I'm sure decreased Since this guy walked into a, a bar into Now a the bar. world sure can confuse a man A gal might let life trick her And the sober kind are too inclined To grumble, whine, and bicker But in bars you'll find some peace of mind That's what you get with Liquor. These two walk into a bar. She's 33. He's 41. She's got no life. He's got no fun. Their chances of connecting range from slim to none. But we haven't gone very far. The joke goes like this. This guy. This gal, these two walk into a, walk into a bar. So how, how long have each of you been been in the, the game, let's say? Oh, I've been uh, way too long. <laughs> well, you know, we, we should I mention, crazy. Uh, Mark, yeah. you go back to Musical World number three. Third episode, oh, right. right? Number yeah, yeah. three, we featured Stand By Stand the River. Right, that's right, yeah. Um, and that's been three years ago that we've, yeah. we featured that show. So, I mean... We go back with you a long way, and this is the first time we met you. <laughs> yeah. In person. yeah, that show was here at Stages in uh, 2003, so this is my first return here since then. I'm really delighted because it's hard to get into this festival. Yes, you know? it is. And, you know, I've been sending stuff here practically every year. Sure. Um, so, you know, anyone listening out there, this is this is definitely one of the places to be because they do such a lovely job of your work and give it so much love. And then you finally get to see what the heck you did wrong, right. uh, which is part of the process. But to answer your question, I, you know, I've, I've been wanting to see my uh, dramatic musical writing on stage for a couple of decades, and, and it's, a, it's a long, slow slog. You know? mm -hmm. um, so these, these moments when you, when you really get into it and, 
get that wonderful collaborative feel with the new directors and actors and stuff are just magical. It sure is. It sure is. Uh, that's at the uh, the Williamston Theater in Michigan, which is right outside of Lansing, and it's a very good small repertory company. Or I'm not sure if it's a repertory, but they have a full season. It's an equity house, and the show's going to run from uh, first preview March 22nd through April 22nd. I'm actually my wife and I are planning on being there Thursday night, so it'll be good to see you. We'll we'll miss Mark, but uh, we'll be able to see uh, others. How did you come about? Um, finding Williamston Theater, where did they contact you, or do you have an inside with them, or how did that come? Yeah, this is Mark. Yeah, we did have a, an inside, which was sort of part of the genesis of the piece itself. Uh, the uh, development director of Williamston Theater is Emily Sutsmith, my sister. She's oh. one of the founders of the theater. Oh, really? Um, they found it about That's five great. years ago. So I see uh, Emily every year at... Uh, family reunion, and uh, I'd ask her, what you doing, what you doing? And, and she would sort of bemoan the fact that, uh, well, the last season was great. We, we made it through another season, which is always a big thing for a, a professional theater. Um, and they had run into this paradox, which is they could put on these brilliant plays, and they often did fairly well, but any musical they put up there would sell out. And selling out is important for a little theater, you know, the, the difference in revenue, you know, you can double your your box office take, uh, and that makes a difference for the following season. Um, but they really have trouble. Musicals generally come out of big cities and and require big cast. Small rep theaters cannot afford them, can't afford royalties, can't afford all the equity costs, stage manager costs, etc. And there, there's a, a real lack of tiny musicals. There are some, but these types of theaters uh, venues tend to use them up. You know, there's the uh, last five years, et cetera, and pretty soon there, there's nothing left except to do them again. Um, and I, so I said to Alan, hey, let's, let's write one of these things. Let's take our trunk songs. We have a lot of trunk songs. Alan, you're a genius. Make a story. Okay. And he comes up with the, you know, two people walking in a the bar. They can pretty much sing about anything, you know, because they, they stumble in with the stories of their lives. Right. Very good. So he he turns this thing out. He turns this thing out. It's it's a brilliant little script. Uh, it's funny. It's tight. It's it's a love story. Um, and it ends. Sure enough, there's all our trunk songs. Uh, but but uh, what happens is it's, it's, it's too good. The story's too good to have songs that weren't written for it. So I don't know what the proportion is. We still have about half of the songs. I think it's eight new ones and six of the old ones. And um, it actually was one part that had been a one-act musical that we had written that we reworked um, that shows up in the second act that basically gave us the one main character of Valerie. And then I just sort of backtracked from there and says, okay, how do these people meet? Where does this all go? And it it was sort of fun having the restrictions put on of, okay, you have one set, you have three, two or three actors go, you know. Um, this one actually was from after we did the table reading and we, we knew that we were going to have to replace some songs at that point just to get things more specific to the characters. And, um, 
the director of the Williamson production, Tony Caselli, actually came in for the New York reading, which was great. And one of his thoughts was that we need to establish Kip's geekiness, you know, because these are both computer types, uh, uh, Kip and Valerie. And just the word geek triggered the phrase when they made the geek next door. And and all of a sudden I started seeing the whole way of expressing um, Kip's backstory, essentially. And then I sent to Mark, and he had some thoughts about, uh, you know, changing the end of it more, you know, giving us uh, a little something to move forward with with the song. And when the music came up, he says, what are you thinking with this? And I was said, you know, what sort of popped into mind was Harry Chapin. And he said, I was thinking the same thing, which is great, because that means we're on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of know it's going to be a good song. And this is actually my favorite song in the show now. Oh, wow, that's always good to hear. So then we switch it up uh, for the chorus section. The music then turns into sort of a derivative of the theme to Star Trek or Star Wars, because he's a geek after all. <laughs> so you sort of go back and forth. But then he takes it. In, he takes that same thing and he strips it down, and it's almost like there's Mozart underneath it. It's just beautiful, you know, the, what he does with the arrangement. So. Okay, well let's listen. Thank to you, that. sir. <laughs> this is Gil Brady from The Usual. And this is the geek next door. I always used to see her walking briskly by my doorway, an MBA attired in Armani business suits. I'd wonder if she noticed that I'd watch her pass my doorway, the t-shirt wearing techie who just daydreams and computes. One day she said hello with her eyes locked on mine. And could I fix her dedicated service line? I said I'd dedicate my service if she dine with the geek next door. And so the geek next door surprised them both by speaking out. He felt his courage soar. He wooed her without freaking out. He boldly went where no geek ever went before. Let's hear it for the geek next door and so I started courting never thinking I could win her but winning her was easy turned out keeping her was hard each morning we had breakfast every evening we had dinner I'd play games in the basement while she sunbathed in the yard the chips kept getting smaller the connections fast I burrowed into coding and I had a blast. I never thought each day with her could be the last for the geek next door. And so the geek next door stopped reading in between the lines. He managed to ignore the growing list of warning signs. Because she loved you doesn't mean forever. How foolish was the geek next door? She got herself promoted, transferred to the corporate HQ. I scored some big investors, staked my claim to CyberTurf. She couldn't meet at lunchtime, I worked late into the evenings. Sometimes she sent me emails, I would read them, then go surf. Then one day I came home and she had changed the locks. 
I hid myself inside a box, inside a box. I measured my existence with irregular clocks, like a geek next door. But then the geek next door decided to reboot his heart. He finally knows the score. He's ready for the game to start. He will listen for their signals. If they're out there, he will greet them. For them to find him, he will seek them out and meet them. He has learned from his mistakes and hereby swears he won't repeat them. He's left his hidden fortress. Now let's go explore. Let's hear it for the geek next door. Let's hear it for the geek next door. Let's hear it for the geek next door. Mark, you've been having some health issues, and you've been you've been writing some of these songs through these health issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a hell of a year for me. Um, I I actually lost my job last summer, uh, just in a series of layoffs. Happens to a lot of corporate people these days, uh, and I was eagerly out uh, interviewing and, and getting a lot of success. But uh, then I got diagnosed with cancer, which was Pretty poor timing, as you could imagine. I lost some of the safety net of the job, so I still had the uh, med- medical benefits. Uh, and so I've spent this year just, uh, you know, being, as my wife says, cancer boy. It's a full-time job. Uh, for me, the treatment's been chemo. I've been going every month. I'm actually on it right now, laying in my bed at home, a little pump. Um, but it has been uh, incredibly freeing, you know, as I've I've said that, you know, I'm hoping to, to beat this, though the odds are, you know, 50-50 uh, with these tough ones. Um, but cancer is definitely the connoisseur's end game if, if such it ends up being. Because, man, you got a lot of time to think about everything. Uh, just really to weigh yourself, to weigh your choices, to, to think about reality, to think about what to expect. Um, but in the meantime, I've had a ton of time to be creative. So it's been... In that respect, a, a really wonderful year. I've written, uh, you know, as Alan mentioned, uh, I worked with him to finish off eight new songs. I'm in the midst of a piano sonata now. I actually took a stab at a novel, which I'd always wanted to do, and uh, well, no it's a nice problem. life. So uh, who knows what will come of all this. I keep telling him that the, uh, the creative process is part of the cure, you know, as long as you're, yeah. as long as you're composing I, I music. That's you absolutely that correct in almost every case. Jim, you know, as writers ourselves, um, I can't help but think how we, uh, how we would all wish to leave as rich of a legacy as as Mark did. No doubt. Just listening to... You know, going back and listening to those episodes, and and I remember the first thing I ever heard by him. I think you said that too. Was the title cut from Stand by the River, and I was blown away. Without a doubt, I played it over and <laughs> over and over, yep. and uh, I called uh, and talked to him one time before that episode back in the early days 
We didn't do interviews. We mm. we sent them questions via email right. or talked to them, and then they would send back responses, mm-hmm. and uh, Dave would read out their responses and setups to the songs. Right. But during that time, I had called Mark and to talk to him about the show. He he had emailed me and mm-hmm. said, "Can we talk? I what's this all about?" Because podcasting was relatively new. Sure. So, sure. Uh, I was just, eh, infatuation is a good word, I guess. I've got it with a lot of musicals, but this song in particular mm-hmm. was the one that really got to me that, uh, that Mark and Joanne, his wife, wrote. Right. And what's really remarkable is that they capture in this song, which we're going to close the episode with, they capture the very real, genuine emotions of, of a people that are so separated from who they are. They yes. really embodied who these people were and the experiences, um, the experiences of freedom and of entrapment and of yes. family and all captured yep. in this one piece. Yeah. So we felt it was appropriate that episode 99 ends with Mark Sutton Smith's and Joanne Stand by the River, the title cut from Stand by the River. Shadows watching at the windows, taking what we can when we can. Careful planning one by one. A little progress is better than none, but they continue to run. Lurking in the alley. Standing at the edges, reaching who we can when we can. There are cries you must ignore. A single casualty won't lose us the war. But every day there are more. Never restore. Oh, my brother, and every day there are.